welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. We're going to dive into the scriptures in just a moment, but I'd love to say two things off the bat. The first is this. A massive gratitude, not just from Meryl and I, but the many who have enjoyed sitting under the lighthouse effect that this church has. You believed in and partnered with Tony and Kath and the leadership team here, and uh, not just is this the outward picture of a collaborative journey, the uh, many hundreds of you who are seated out there, but... um, you know, base churches are like lighthouses. Many churches are street lights. They have incredible value. They are so needed to light up the dark places where people live, where they reside, where they, where they live out their day-to-day realities. But every now and again, God in His grace and mercy throws a lighthouse up. It casts a much bigger light. It carries a greater responsibility. It's not just there for those people who walk along the streets and the pavements, the sidewalks on a day-to-day basis but they to prevent people from shipwrecking, not just individuals and families, not just families, but other churches as well. And uh, Victory has been raised up by God as one of those great lighthouse churches that not only inspire you, sir, you, madam, and the journey that you have and your family, but it's also been raised up by God to create a massive light that others can feel the safety and the sanctity under your care, under your security, under your affection. And my prayer is that God would raise up many more lighthouses who realize that their primary reason for existence is not just themselves, but it's the many others who benefit from the large light that they cast. That their prayers are not just for the lighthouse, the, the, the street lights, and those who live under that ambience, but it carries a far greater impact. Their worship, their preaching, their community, their life. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart Um, for what you have done in partnering with shoulder-to-shoulder, hip-to-hip with this leadership team. The second thing I want to say real quick is this. Those of you who are under 25, I hope you realize the absolute need we have of you. I was 18 years old when I came to faith. I was a long-haired college student, 1976. And I'm so grateful that the men and women who saw this whole generation of us come into faith, Meryl was 15, and many of our friends believed in us, not just so that we would satisfy them and their journey of faith, but there was something that resides in our heart, resided in our heart, like Tony and Kath, of which this is what was in their heart all those years ago, And that which is behind us was in our heart all those years ago. You see, the true measure of effective family or effective church is not what happens on a Sunday or even a decade. It's what happens when the lights go dim, the music quietens, and the next generation engages in their God's story. The true measure of our parenting is not seen by our three kids the eldest of which is married and she has kids. It's what we see with our grandkids and our great-grandkids and their engagement in the passion and fervor of a great God adventure. 
And the true measure of this legacy called victory is not just you buying in, as you've done so wonderfully with Tony, with Kath, with the rest of the leadership team, and the great light which you're casting over Adelaide and beyond. And I think the beyond is a major part of what will fashion the next five years. I throw that in no extra charge. But it will be what you who are younger will find the life of God and the freedom and the spaciousness in God to express that over the next decade and beyond. I'm 54. I've absolutely loved my spiritual journey. I am grateful to God that if God decided to take me home today, I could say with integrity, Father, thank you. I've lived a life that's exceedingly abundantly more than I can ask or imagine. But that would not be enough if it was not for the fact that there's a generation of men and women who are rising up with, 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 with authority and with boldness and with courage, who are standing on our shoulders, seeing further than we ever saw, more passionate than we ever were, more committed and more sacrificial than we ever were, because what we laid as the groundwork, you are putting a building structure on top. And I want to commend and commission you today, those of you who are older, your job's not done. It's only done when Jesus calls your number. Until that happens, there ain't no retirement. There's just passionate engagement. And for those of you who are young, we are dependent upon you. We are dependent upon you. The amazing thing when I watched um, football Friday night, while all of you ladies were seeking the Lord, Tony and I were seeking footy to see if there was any inspiration. The amazing thing was there wasn't a 50-year-old man on that floor, on that paddock, on that field. But the future is defined by those who are passionate and committed and the dream that lies within you, you young guns. We want to create space for your God adventure and run with that fire to see that God adventure established. Grab your Bibles with you, please, and we will go straight to the book of James. We'll read a portion of scripture together. We will explain it, get into it, and see what God by his spirit will kindly deposit into our hearts personally, but also into us as a community. James, please, chapter 2. We'll pick up in the 14th verse, and we'll go through till the 26th verse. James is a, a little book tucked away, five chapters, right towards the end of the scriptures. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous, and he was called a friend 
of God. What an incredible accolade. Wouldn't that be the thing you would love most on your tombstone? I mean, honestly, is there any higher accolade? The friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now so often we subconsciously read a book like this, which has a whole lot of thoughts that sometimes theologians struggle with, and they say, you know, it's so disconnected. There's no real structure to this letter. And I think it's because we, we, we almost picture James as this bishop or archbishop or someone with these long robes and the staff and a tea cozy on his head, and he's got the sober, distant religious expression. And that could not be further from the truth because James is a father. And to understand this letter, we must understand the Father heart of God as reflected in James. And we understand this is actually a letter from a father. To understand it in religious terms is to miss the great moment that this man, Jesus' brother, who was a doubter, a cynic, a critic, who stand, stood at a distance and watched his brother, did not believe, wasn't convinced, was uncertain. I'm sure when he was young, he teased him messed with him. When he was older, he would shake his head as his friend said, so your brother's the Messiah? And he's like, nah, oh, our family. So messed up. So blended. It's so waste. I mean, can you imagine having a brother who said he's the Messiah? And he watched and he listened. And then came that glorious moment where between Jesus' ascension, a resurrection and ascension, where Jesus met James. Ten days. That's all he had. Ten days to wrap up Project Planet Earth. Ten days to finish his assignment and to get up there and to complete his great intercessory mandate where he cries out before the throne day and night on our behalf. Ten days to wrap up business, meet with the disciples, meet with the 500, meet with the two on the road to Emmaus. All of those things. And amidst all of that, it's almost like he pushed out the time button and he said, I've got one more job to do. And the angel said, you've got you to speed up, dude. Things are happening. The, the rocket's leaving on Saturday. We've got to get you out of here. And he says, I've got one more assignment to do. Leaves his bags, runs out there. James is sitting having his Turkish coffee with his newspapers. Somewhat confused, perplexed. That guy that they butchered, was that my brother? Was that the Messiah? Or was that both? And almost nonchalantly in his own trauma and uncertainty, he says, come on in. And he hears the door open, but there's no footsteps. And he looks up. And it's his brother Messiah. And he sees the wounds. But rather than seeing a finger of accusation and a whip and the deep disappointment of a brother who he wanted him to say, he wanted Jesus to say, why didn't you believe in me? Why didn't you support me? I needed you. Why weren't you there when they turned against me? Why didn't you get my back? And rather he looks up and he sees the eyes of compassion and the hands of affection and the heart of healing, and he gets up, and his brother holds him, and I think they wept and wept and wept together, and I'm sure he must have buried his face in his brother's chest, 
I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And Jesus looked at him, I'm sure, and he said, it's okay. It's okay. You see, if we don't understand this, we think this is just a book of ideas, philosophies, and pieces of wisdom. It's not. It's a father's letter to the 12 tribes who were in dispersion. They scattered. They're being persecuted. They're being martyred and killed for their faith. And he writes as a father, and it's almost like it's a conversation around a cell phone. They speak to him, and he replies. They speak to him, and he replies. But we only hear this side of the conversation and enter this text. This morning we looked at a portion, now we're looking at another piece. How do we make sense, dear friends? Is it faith or is it works? Is it faith and works? One of the great principles of interpreting scripture, whenever a scripture confuses you, go to another scripture that complements that piece. Find that one. So grab your Bibles with me and let's go to Ephesians. Because to understand this text, letters from a father, as, as he writes this incredible passage, this text helps us understand that text. And you were dead, uh, we'll pick up for the sake of time, verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of the works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in it. So in order to understand this letter from a father, James, we understand it by two, understanding two primary components from this text. The first is this. We are already seated in heavenly places. I cannot tell you how that verse resounded in me as a young university student who was wrestling intellectually with my thoughts and my doubts and my uncertainties and my vulnerabilities and outwardly trying to live out my faith in a secular university where Christianity was being pounded day in and day out. And when I heard the mystery that my salvation was taken care of and that God has already seated me in heavenly places, it's a, the grammar is a past tense reality. It's already happened. It's one of the great mysteries. It's already happened. Mine, I have a seat in heaven, like the director's chair, and my name is already written there. And there will come that day when the elevator throws me into the great audience of one. And as the elevator door opens and the trumpet calls, it's the only time you and I will ever truly be royalty. And we'll step out of the elevator and the witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses of days gone by, will applaud as the angel says, Jesus, may I present to you Chris Vinant. And the witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses will stand to their feet in sovereign applause, not because I am good, but because he is good. 
not because I managed to hold on with great tenacity to a salvation, but because He saved me and He kept me and He redeemed me and He held me. And as they applaud, He will step from that throne of grace and walk towards me and He will gather me. And the amazing thing, I will know it's Him. I've never seen Him. I've never heard His voice. But when I see Him, I will know Him. And in the rupture of a great applause with mixed just just cascades of worship, as, as time stood still, if that exists in eternity, he will put his arm around me and he will walk me to his seat and he will say, welcome home, well done. Well done. And then this writer goes on to describe an incredibly elegant picture of artwork. He says, you, sir, madam, are his great workmanship. The Greek word there means masterpiece. You are his Mona Lisa. And God the artist put together this extraordinary masterpiece, an incredibly and exquisitely beautiful painting. And we stepped into that world and with our sin, we dashed the painting to the ground. We kicked sand onto it. We jumped it. We cut it. We ripped it to pieces. And we said, we will not look like that. And in naked rebellion, we stepped out of the masterpiece of his creation. But Jesus, and Jesus comes and he takes the cross like a massive brush. And he picks us up and he dusts us off and he starts painting. And I don't know if Nat King Cole would sing, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa. As Jesus puts us back and he starts painting us and repairing us and the beauty starts emerging again. What is there to dislike about this glorious salvation? What is there to despise about the fact that God takes the canvas of your life and mine and he puts it back up and he starts painting with the blood and the cross like a master artist and restores us to our former beauty, to God's divine intent? Does that make sense? And then he says... The good works he prepared in advance for us. Dear friends, when James, Father James, writes this letter from a dad, the good works he speaks of there is not just being a nice person, hug a granny, kiss a dog, and, and, and you know, give a kid candy. He's not talking about us becoming nice people and some kind of nice barometer that measures your life. You know, faith and niceness. Chuk, 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 chuk. He is talking about these good works which God put inside of me in advance. And the catalytic faith that releases those good works is what he is describing here. He is saying to these sons and daughters of him who are in exile, they the diaspora, they've been scattered north, predominantly north of Jerusalem, and they've taken an absolute beating. And James, with incredible compassion and understanding, writes to them, reminding them of the good works God has put inside of them. Ladies and gentlemen, the true joy you and I find is when we are living in that good works space. It is not like God growls at us in displeasure and uncertainty, looking to see if we have energy for one more good work. And so I run to a church meeting just to see if maybe God will check off one more good work. And then I feel really guilty, so I come to the prayer meeting because I'm at victory, and I, I better go to the prayer meeting, and God checks off one more good work. That's not what he's speaking about here. He is speaking about the deposit of good works that's intrinsically in me. 
And he wants to explode out of me by faith. Faith is saying, God, I see the good works you've put inside of me. I know the meaning, why I'm on this planet. It isn't to secure a salvation. That's taken care of. There is a director's chair in heaven for me. Forgive my picture with my name on already. It's not like God says, "Mm, I'm not sure. Fold up the chair in storage. Oh, no, he's having a good day. Bring out the chair again. Let's open it. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Back, 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 back. You know, is there an angel who's got an assignment with my chair? Out and out and out. No, it's already taken care of. It's positioned for me. You're far too gracious, but isn't it a magnificent salvation? And then the good works. So once I understand that my salvation is taken care of and my good works are invested in me, this passage now makes sense. And so it's almost as if James puts his arms, just stay with the picture for a moment, puts his arm around his boy and he says, Dad, it's too hard. This is too hard. We came to faith and it was so exciting and the worship was wonderful and we all hung out and we had pizza together and we fed all the people. But it's too hard right now. And he says, come, my boy, come. Come and follow him. And he takes him to the faith works house. And he says, come, peep through the window with me. See, this is not a passage. What have you done with the naked and the hungry and the... What have you done with them? You bad people. Well, why haven't you done so? That's not the heart and tone of this brother who met his Messiah brother. This is the tone of a father who puts his arms around his boy. And I wonder when this was read out to that early church, a little kid in the third row says, excuse me, what do you think James meant with this? You know this part where he speaks about, um, you know, about the naked thing and all that, well, what do you think he means? And And I think an old sage put his hand up at the back and he says, do you mind if I say something? Remember when we were all young? Remember when we were in Jerusalem? Do you remember how incredible that was? Do you remember how people were being added every day? Do you remember how there were no needy amongst us? James was there. We were driving down here this afternoon and I asked Kath some questions about your story. The 13 who started out, 10 of whom are still in the church. The first little community center that you had and the excitement and the setup and the tear down and brochures and the little adventures and projects that you had, probably quite uncertain exactly as to what you're supposed to do. Probably have a bit of worship. That's a, yeah, worship, yeah, that's a good idea. He loves me, yeah, yeah. You know, just a little bit of worship. And then the second community sent in some growth. And gee, why did we grow? Scrum down, growth. What are the points? Let's do it again. And, and so the unfolding story to this, your fourth building. And I think what James is doing is he is reminding them. He is reminding you're not a bunch of bad people, James the dad says. He's saying, remember what it was like in the beginning when you were all together and there were no needy amongst you. Let it be that way again. Let it be this way in a new context, in the new cities and towns that you find. Go and take what you've learned in Jerusalem and go and live it out now. 
And then I wonder if another old sage put up his hand. He said, you know, I wonder if James isn't just gently encouraging us. Remember in Jerusalem when it was so much fun and, and we were being blessed and our businesses were blessed and there was money? Well, it's not like that now, man. It's just, these are hard times. And you know what? I think we've forgotten. See, folks, in times of famine or economic downturn or vulnerability, we zip our wallets. But wasn't that the same God who was with us in Jerusalem? Isn't that the same God who blessed us? Doesn't he still live? Isn't he? And, and I think James puts his arms around and he says, now, what do you see? Do you see what happened in the early days when it was intimate and fresh and exciting? Well, we're not in those days anymore. And remember when it was times of blessing and, and there was money in our pockets? And remember how generous we are? And folks, in that analogy, can I appeal to you? Our giving is not defined by economic trends. It's not economic trends. It's defined by our understanding of who he is. The good works that are prepared in advance for me. Why will God give me good works and not give me a wallet to match it? All right, here's an honest story. Just so that you know where Meryl and I are at. We are salaried, that's all. I get a salary. And God says, you know what I'd like you to do? I want you to travel the world and support back and help build up churches. And I'm like, um, one question. <laughs> just this one. So you want us to get in airplanes and fly around the world and, and it's almost like the father leans and says, question? How? Isn't that the same God that blessed, that still reigns? Isn't that the same God that's, do you hear what I'm saying? I think James is giving us a picture and saying, even when he blesses, we bless, and our true revelation of giving is in times of famine and economic uncertainty, we give generously, we give enthusiastically because He is God. He says, come on, come on, come around, come around, come around. Let's look through the second window. He looks through the second window, and He takes them, and He gives them a second picture, and He says this, God is one. Whenever we find a passage of scripture, scratch around till you find the theological piece. Scratch till you find that God idea. And in this rich text that we look at, there it is. God is one. We can get past it so quickly, it's almost dismissively. But the whole passage hangs on those little words. God is one. Why? Well, there are two reasons. One, he's defining the Trinity for us. And he is saying that God puts his purpose in our hearts. Jesus qualifies me for that purpose. And the Holy Spirit empowers me to fulfill that purpose. Are you with me? That's what he's saying. He's saying, now I want you to get this. The Father's purpose is what gives me satisfaction. Friends, I know I'm preaching a little quickly and I'll try and slow down. Please don't think that the preoccupation of divine conversation is about your dreams. For two reasons. One, your dreams are too small. Really, as an 18-year-old, do you think I dreamt that Meryl and I would be doing what we're doing? Do you really think that? I had this really massive dream. I'm going to have the biggest church in town. I am embarrassed to even say that to you. 
I think God said, oh, you know, your dream, it's just so silly. Let's just get rid of it. Now let's put my purpose on the stage. Let's discuss this. Because my dream is too small and God's purpose is too big. God's purpose keeps me in faith. It keeps me vulnerable, uncertain. It keeps me leaning into him. And then, secondly, as we peep through this window, this faith works conversation, he says, even the demons shudder. Now, that word shudder in the Greek, such an interesting word, because it has to do with fear, but also has to do with opposition and resistance. Now, now, the demons oppose God and resist him, but they can't do it to him. So they look to you and to look to me and transfer their anger towards him, towards us. Some of the most difficult moments of my life as a husband and as a dad has been watching my kids, my wife, learn to resist the enemy and win. And what is my instinct? As a red-blooded male, I want to push Meryl behind me. I want to put my kids behind me. And the elders in this church want to do it for you. And can I ask you? Can I suggest with tenderness in my heart, some of you have felt really angry because the elders haven't protected you. And I wonder if it isn't God saying, now get out the way, boy. There are times God's had to say to me, son, I'm not asking you to protect your wife because she has to learn to fight and win this battle. Now you pray for her, absolutely. You empower her, absolutely. But she has to resist the enemy. She has to learn to stand by faith. She has to learn to stand on the word of God and beat the enemy. You can be in the wings, but you cannot stand in between. And there are times, folks, I know we want the leaders to come and stand between us and the enemy, between us and the onslaught, and say, get behind me, get behind me, Superman time. God says, boy, just get out the way. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he shall flee from you. Come on, let's look at the last, the third window quickly. Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith. He's a really cool old-timer. You want to talk old-timers? I mean, he's the the old-timer of old-timers. He's like the stud of old timers. You know what I'm saying? He would go to the young at heart and be like the go-to guy. You know what I mean? He would put up a table in the coffee shop and everyone would come and want a few moments with him like the mafiosa. I mean, he's just like... But it's interesting that James takes them to the hall of fame. He says, come look through that window. Come and stand there and have a look. And there is the hall of famer. And it's all about his boy. And it's about Abraham having to take his boy up and put his boy on the altar. I was preaching on this the other day and I heard my mouth say, one of the greatest gifts you can give your kid is that you love Jesus more than you love them. The place went quiet. And I thought about what I said. And I thought about my three kids. And I realized that's actually the truth. And Isaac, as he lay there, wood all over him, bound up, and he looked into his pop's eyes, and I'm sure his pops wept. And it's one of those moments where words are unnecessary because the boy knew that his dad loved Jesus more than his dad loved him. 
And as James is standing with his arm around his boy looking through this, and there's a moment where words aren't needed. Because we all face that moment. Will I love anyone more than I love him? And lastly, I bring it into land. James takes us to Rahab. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messages and sent them out by the other way. I love the story. I love the story because James doesn't just take them to the Hall of Famer. Best stats, great record. Everyone talks about him. He says, come around the corner here. What do you see? Four times Rahab is mentioned. Three times it's Rahab the prostitute. Can you imagine your worst sin ever? And it's recorded in the Bible. Don't tell me what it is. It's recorded here in the Bible. Every time people refer to you, they refer to that thing you wish never happened. She was alienated. She was pushed out in the city wall. No one wanted her. No one wanted to be near her. She's in the hall of shame. But you see, God is so profound. And James, as a letter to her from a father, puts his arm around. And he says, Rahab knew her wretchedness. Because you've got work, good works inside of you. And you're saying, Tony, I've got these good works inside of me. But do you know how wretched I am? I mean, do you know how sick I am? Do you know how much sin resides in me? And Tony put his arms around you and says, yes, I know. Because I also carry that wretchedness. The good works that we live by faith are not based on our performance. In fact, most times they're based on our understanding of just how wretched we are. So, so why is Rahab mentioned? Well, if you look at her in, in the scriptures early on in the Old Testament, it says, I know your God and I know how big your God is. That's my paraphrase. Even in her wretchedness, she looked and she saw a big God and she said, I want in. Say, Chris, I, I, I'm so aware of my wretchedness. I do understand. I'm quite honestly glad that my wretchedness isn't up here because that would be really embarrassing. But her wretchedness did not hold her captive. Her understanding of just how big was, God was, blew it open for her. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And God bless.